mission is to simplify your finances so you can focus on your practice and enjoy life. Now here are your hosts, Ryan Berglow and Alex Collins. Welcome back to Holistic Finance. I'm your host, Ryan Burklow. With me as always, Alex. I'm wearing boat shoes, but don't own a boat, Collins. Thanks, Ryan. So in our last episode, we were talking about the the order of operations, if you will, around now that you're making money, what to do with it. Uh, The last part of the order of operations was around transfer. And so today's conversation is going to be around essentially the exit, if you will, of your business. Um, Because let's just face it, whether or not we like it or not, at some point, you're going to leave your practice. Hopefully, it's by choice and under your control. Um, And there obviously are reasons and things that may happen that could cause you to leave the practice uh, that are without your, out of your control. Yeah, in a different manner, for sure. There's There are a ton of different factors out there, and, you know, it's one of these things that gets a little bit romanticized about, you know, being able to, to step away from your practice when and how you want. We hope that that's the case for you. Well, let's just face it, that, that's the goal for all of us, right, is, is to build a practice so that we can either sell it to a third party, right, and, and take, take that compensation. And, it, again, that transitions to the personal balance sheet, and then we go on with our life. And, and maybe it's still we're still in, involved in the practice, actually. We're just not no longer the owner, owner of it. Um, could be a sell to an insider, which happens a lot of times for ND practices because they bring on the associate with hopefully the – with them – eventually buying them out of the practice yeah, the mentor mentee relationship exactly and and then there's the other one where you keep it till death and what i mean by keep it until death is you know if you've built a practice where you don't have to be in the practice actually practicing and you've got passive income coming from it sometimes it actually makes sense to not sell the practice and just keep that passive income rolling until you pass away with a plan obviously of transitioning it over Yes, having a plan is the critical component there. It, it may wind up being that we're, you know, that our heirs, our, our our children, son or daughter might wind up joining the practice and the plan is to ultimately transition it to them and it, it for taxation purposes or whatever else it may make sense to hold on to the ownership until we ultimately pass away. So, let's Talk, Alex, a little bit about what are some maybe concerns around selling uh, selling the practice, right? And, and let's just start to with third party, and go from there in terms of um, you know taxation. Uh, well, before we go there, Ryan, I'd, I'd be remiss if we didn't at least throw all these fun disclosures out there that. Everything that we talk about today is not legal advice. It's not tax advice. Make sure that you have an attorney draw up these documents like buy-sell agreements, operating agreements, things of that nature. Uh, folks like you and I have resources to be able to help people review some of their documents. 
but we're not drafting documents ourselves. You don't want to be taking advice from us on how to write the documents. Uh, we can certainly help out with some of the things that should be in there or maybe not in there. At the same time, we are definitely not providing legal advice. We're not writing documents, etc. When it comes to something like that, 100% what Alex said, and you should not be doing that by yourself. Like that, that is not a do-it-yourself project. <laughs> Correct. So with the lovely disclosure from our analytic, Alex Collins, <laughs> let's move on to what I was talking about around you know, the, the pros and cons of, of the sale of the business, right? Like obviously the big pro of selling the business is your life's work um, being, being sold so you actually get compensated for what you've been building. I guess it could also be a negative in the fact that maybe you don't want to leave the practice um, or you're nervous about exiting, let's put it that way. Yeah, for so many people, you know, their their practice, their business has become their identity of who they are. And so it's something where once they ultimately sell their practice, they go through this identity crisis. We see this a lot with professional athletes. We see this a lot with other business owners. We see this a lot with just folks who retire. They've been known as the mayor of Woodenville or whatever for so long that now, you know, when, once that identity is taken away from them, they feel like a piece of them has been taken away. And that's really the, the big thing that you need to make sure that you've thought of identified and, and figured out how to, how you're going to deal with it ahead of time. And, you know, that's where making sure that you have other passions beyond just, uh, just your practice really comes into play. The other part about the sale to a third party is just the, the taxation and not that we're talking about, you know, how to fix that from a, because from, we're not consultants around taxes, but it's important to understand what taxes are actually involved in the sale of a practice. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're able to give some insight and some strategies at the same time. We're not giving tax advice. So what are the taxes that occur when you sell a practice? Sure. Depends on how the sale is structured. However, you're ultimately likely going to wind up with, in some form, taxation on that third party, ordinary income, typically. Then the payments that are being made to you, the practice owner, you're typically looking at a portion of it being considered ordinary income a portion of it be, being considered capital gains. And then a lot of it depends on whether or not it's being uh, paid over time, whether it's a one-time payment, what then happens to it, whether you've got a deferred compensation arrangement that's tied up in it. Uh, there are a hundred different ways to slice and dice the the way in which you're, you're paid for your practice. And each one of those comes with a slightly different taxation structure and and you know really you have to analyze a lot of different factors control liquidity taxation dollar amount things of that nature and make sure that the two parties are are in lockstep with what they're agreeing to right you bring up a good point it you know if they're writing you a check for X amount of dollars and you're bought out and made in whole it's obviously very simple obviously there's tax implications there but 
it, it's pretty simple transaction. But if they're doing a, uh, a compensation over a 10-year period or something like that, well, now as the owner, you have to be, or at least I would be, worried about the fact that, okay, if I give up a large percentage of the ownership of my company that you just purchased from me, but I'm reliant upon you to pay me over 10 years, I sure as heck want to make sure that you're going to be in business in 10 years. Yeah, you wind up with clawback provisions and and ways that you can potentially become the owner again, which most of the time that's not what anybody wants because at that point the new owner has not succeeded. And so now you're walking back into a practice that has had some issues. You're running into all sorts of other different types of issues of what's happened in the one, two, three, five years intermediary to you not being there. Most of the time, whoever's purchasing the practice is going to want to you to stay on as a consultant or as a contractor or an employee uh, to create the continuity with, uh, with the clientele of, of the practice. So it's a good segue to the insider sale, right? That, and I think this is a, a lot of times what happens actually, special, especially inside of naturopath practices around, you know, I hire on an associate with the goal of them eventually buying me out. But when you think about that in real terms, the associate typically doesn't come on board with a million dollars worth of assets to then write a check to you, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And so the biggest trick there is trying to to make sure that there is a a way for them to be able to to structure it. And this is why we oftentimes wind up with these deals that get structured over a five to ten year time period, depending upon how large the practice is, where you know we have this buyout over time, if you will. And really, that that can be solved with planning. We typically suggest having five to seven years lead time. This allows us to put together various different plans, whether it's a deferred compensation arrangement, whether it's a direct payment arrangement from the the corporate the, the practice to the the exiting naturopathic physician, making sure that we're working with that uh, that <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, working with that associate doctor to make sure that there's enough dollars there uh, to be able to have a down payment. We also want to make sure that we're talking with financial institutions like uh, banks, SBA loans, things of that nature, making sure that we understand what all needs to be done in an ideal world. What winds up happening is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 40% uh, of the practice is, is bought out by the, the uh, associate doctor, and then there's an SBA loan to go ahead and tackle the rest of it. So a little bit harder of a transaction, if you will, because it, it you're almost as the owner funding your own exit. Yes, exactly. Right. So again, make sure you're talking with the right professionals to make sure you're, you're looking at it uh, from a taxation standpoint and just from a funding mechanism as well so that both parties are left whole uh, so that the new owner can obviously transition and be set off on the right foot and for the old owner to be compensated for everything that they've been doing to build that practice. Oh, and making sure that you're working with a, a competent advisor to make sure that the the junior partner 
doesn't just abscond with the dollars that you've given them to be able to use to buy out your practice. So making sure that there's vesting schedules and making sure that there's uh, a way to go ahead and make sure that, that heck, if things don't work out properly, that everyone you know is able to, to leave amicably. So the last sale of the business, if you will, is, is more of the, the sale where you're keeping until, you know, till death, if you will. And this is the aspect of, you know, if you have passive income coming from the practice and you're not having to be in the practice actually working, then the practice can just pay you until it, till you pass away and it transitions to uh, the new person you set up to transition it to. Yeah, it's, it's massively ironic because most of the time when we start a practice, you know, we think of the practice as being us and we don't want to be replaceable, right? We, we're, we want to be the, the center of our own practice. I know that was, at least for me, for years and years and years inside of my financial planning practice was I, I had a hard time wrapping my head around this concept of being able to, to make myself replaceable. And, you know, when you've made yourself replaceable as the business owner, it's this concept called building an enterprise practice where now you can you have a whole heck of a lot more freedom. You can take vacation. You can be away. That's really when you have a business that becomes saleable is when you aren't relied upon to maintain all of the client relationships. Yeah, that's one aspect that we probably should have maybe started this conversation off with is what type of practice are you building and A, do you know it? And B, are you okay with it? And it's not that one is better than the other necessarily, but it's important for the actual transition to retirement, if you will, to know which which direction you're going, right? So the, the practice we really haven't spoken about is what we call the lifestyle practice, where essentially you've got a doctor who's running their practice and it's not sellable because if that doctor is not there, then the practice will just falter. And so that is what we call a lifestyle practice where, you know, the doctor's making good money, but because you're not gonna be able to sell the practice towards the end of working years, if you will, you better be setting yourself up with a retirement plan. And if it is saleable, you really have to have like the perfect storm. You have to have someone who has the same bedside manner, the same demeanor, the same personality. It's just much harder to do that way. Correct. And the the value of that type of a practice is significantly less because if I'm purchasing a practice that's a lifestyle practice, yeah, I don't know how much of the clientele is staying. And that makes that make, adds a whole heck of a lot of risk to me. So the easiest way for me to mitigate that risk is by discounting the value of it. Right. So again, understand which one you are, the lifestyle practice, or actually are you building an entity business where you it's sellable? Um, and again, it's not that we're saying one is better than the other. It's just more for you to understand which one you are so you can plan appropriately. So the second half of this podcast, we want to talk about, you know, we just spoke about what you could control in terms of the eventual transition. Now let's start talking about, unfortunately, the things that you can't control. Yeah, and let's take maybe a quick second, Ryan, here to, to talk about when do we engage in the, these types of conversations. And it, it's really once we've gotten past that initial stage of we're set up, we're running, and we're no longer in fear of too many bills coming in the door, 
and not enough income coming in the door. Cash flow positive. Let's start there. Yeah, exactly. So let's just face it. Early on, cash flow is probably going to be negative. So once we get cash flow positive and it's been consistent, now we start looking at, especially if we have partners, right? We start looking at, you know, buy sell agreements and make sure we're protecting ourselves from the things that we can't control. We spoke about it in the last podcast around actually two podcasts before on the personal side. Now let's talk about it from the business side. A buy sell agreement allows two partners or more to protect each other if one has to leave under a circumstance that they couldn't control. Well, there's also this thing called the unilateral buy sell agreement. And that is for a solo practitioner, to a certain extent, if you are a solo practitioner, great. You've been putting your blood, sweat, tears, and equity into this thing for maybe years to build it up. We need to make sure that you're getting value out of it, your family's getting value out of it, and that any of the employees that you have, any of the patients that you have, that there's a continuity plan there. And so there's this thing called a unilateral plan where there might be one owner and there might be, you know, a colleague at a different company or uh, a, a, a junior uh, associate doctor who can step in and take over. But it's, it's only got one owner. And so there's this misnomer that you have to have multiple owners in order to have a buy-sell agreement. Fair. Fair. So what are the things we can't control, right? So we spoke about death. We've spoken about disability, right? From a business standpoint, and let's just focus on the partners for now, Alex, sure. is, you know, imagine if, well, Alex and I are business partners. If something happens to me, let's just say I pass away, that means inherently he's in business now with my wife. To a certain extent, I already am, but. Fair but not in the same capacity. Correct. And my wife definitely brings, shoot, our practice probably like triple if, if my wife came in. So maybe I'm doing the wrong thing anyways. But my point is, is you may not want to be partners with my wife in that capacity at least. Right. And, and so the the first aspect of, of this is making sure that, uh, I mean, Ryan and I have a little bit of a unique situation where his wife works in our practice. Um, but outside of that, you typically don't want to become business partners with your partner's spouse. Uh, they oftentimes don't necessarily know as much about the business or the practice. Uh, they certainly have a different skill set, uh, for better or worse. And so when there is one of these catastrophic type situations, it needs to be well spelled out. You know, in the event of disability, for example, Ryan, if heaven forbid you were disabled for two years, you know, and our agreement says that after two years of not working, you're kicked out of the business and I owe you half of the value of our practice, whether you want to be or not, I now have a legal obligation to buy you out and you don't have the right or the ability to stay. So making sure that we get some of those things correct in terms of what we want for the definition on these things is massively critical. Yeah. And this gets into, again, make sure you're consulting with a lawyer, but this does get into the language of these agreements. Um, oftentimes 
you know, we see more flexible language, if you will. And the last thing, and I'll speak for me personally, the last thing I want is you to be flexible in whether or not you're buying my part out, essentially paying my wife what my family's owed for the partnership that we set up for this business. Yeah. I, and the, the reason that there's flexible arrangements and agreements that get put in place is because of a lack of funding or a lack of ability to fund it. And we really don't want those first right of refusal type contracts because of what you said, it, it provides too much variability where there's no certainty that your family is going to get compensated appropriately. So making sure that we've got strong language with all of the hows and the whys and, and really importantly is the funding mechanism of, okay, what triggers the buyout and where does the dollars come from? heaven forbid I lost you it as a business partner. A, and that's a terrible day for me. I lost a good friend. I've lost my business partner. I've lost the driver of our company to a large extent. And, and now I've got to write a big check to your wife for your portion of the company. Like that is a terrible time to go to the bank and ask for money. Hey, can I get a loan? I know my partner just passed away, but I need a loan for X amount of dollars. Yeah, that may not go so well. Yeah. No banker is going to be like, oh, yeah, no problem here. Let me just cut you a check for that. So, I mean, we could and we probably should do another podcast just on this, uh, just on buy-sell agreements, frankly. But the other things to consider inside of a buy-sell agreement is uh, loss of license, right? If one of us were to lose our license or in the naturopath aspect, if they lose their license, what's what happens? What are the steps? Does that person get bought out? Like, how does that actually operate? And the language around there is ultra important. Divorce. Yeah, Washington is a community property state. So my wife owns half of everything. Your wife owns half of, of everything. Heaven forbid one of the two of us were to go to, through a divorce. Now we've got a third party owning a quarter of our business. That's not good for anyone, including the spouse. So making sure that there's a mechanism there that talks about, you know, how and why and what happens in the event of divorce and, and trying to make sure that there's a funding mechanism for that as much as, as possible. And then the, the last two um, that we put on here, I mean, again, we could sit here for a long time thinking of different things that we, that we can't control. Unfortunately, to put that into a buy-sell agreement and to take up the lawyer's time for that can get extremely costly. So again, protecting worse threats first, as we've said before, is is the the line that we tend to hold on that. Felony and arrest. You know, if if your partner were to get arrested or commit a crime, how does that implicate the partnership? Hard to be a uh, functioning partner from jail. And then dissolution of the partnership. What happens if the partnership just dissolves due to differences or, or what have you? So... Those are just the six things around what you can't control that that are pretty, I mean, if any one of those six occur, it's it's not a great day. No, that that is definitely a bad day. And it's way better to have these conversations when you're getting along than to have one of these things occur. Maybe we're getting along, maybe we aren't getting along, but now one or more party is under duress and you're trying to make these life-altering decisions. It, it becomes next to impossible, if not impossible, to to reach fair agreements 
once something has already happened. So the important thing is to make sure that you're having the conversations ahead of time and they're mutually agreed upon when no one is in distress. So a quick review or some action items from today's podcast is, uh, I think step one, you know, once, once your business is cash flow positive and you're consistent, really starting to consider how we're going to exit the business. Like what type of business will you be lifestyle practice or entity type practice enterprise enterprise. I apologize. Then once we have that understood, having a plan in place for that, right? So oftentimes we, we talk about sitting down, you know, at least five to seven years from retirement, if you will, but uh, just starting with even the buy sell agreement, starting with that protection piece kind of begins that transition where you've got some sort of let's call it a blueprint. So you have flexibility and you've got things in place um, to protect you and to grow towards. Right. For the things that are expected, we've got that five to seven year ramp. We have no idea. We're never given tomorrow. So the unexpected things, like as soon as we're cash flow positive, those things need to be addressed sooner rather than later. So we hope you guys had some takeaways today. As always, feel free to head to our website and send any questions or um, comments you have for the podcast that you'd like to, us to talk about on the next ones. Uh, and other than that, have yourself a good rest of your day. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Quantified Financial Partners, and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Ryan and Alex are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. OSJ 3585 Maple Street, number 140, Ventura, California, 909-399-1100. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Security, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Quantified Financial Partners is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Number 2019-84643, expiration 0821.